And as Dan said, we're changing things up a little bit today. Uh, this morning, we're going to start with the sermon because of the subject matter of the sermon. The sermon is talking about heavenly worship of God. And to me, it makes more sense to respond to the Scripture through worship than to prepare for a sermon about worship and uh, then Switching it around just made sense. I'll just say that. <laughs> Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 4. Now, normally we have a scripture reading before the sermon is delivered, but this morning we're going to uh, do it a little bit differently. We're just going to go into the sections that we'll be talking about. I'll read the scripture that pertains to what we're going to be looking into, and then by the conclusion of the sermon, we will have covered the entire passage. Well, we've been doing a series on the book of Revelation, and as we come to this fourth chapter, we see a huge transition. The transition moves from what has been, what John has seen, to what was during John's time, or what is from John's perspective, and those were those letters to the churches that we looked at in chapters 2 and 3. But now, as we come to this part of the passage, we find that the Word of God is sharing with us heaven. It's sharing with us what it's like. It's a description, a peeling back of what is actually in this place that's shrouded in mystery for many of us. In fact, as we come to this text, we're going to see that the throne of God heaven is described in great detail. And to me, that's encouraging for us as believers. Now, for some reason, this is not doing its thing. So I will have the sound room just transition the slides for me. So when I go like that, you got it. <laughs> I entitled this passage, Worshiping the Almighty God. And what we see as we come into this text, as I said, is a peeling back of heaven. It gives us insight into what heaven is like. Now, let me begin this discussion about heaven with this. Some of us have a great misunderstanding of heaven. As a matter of fact, there was a man that I used to work for, and he loved to tell stupid jokes, much unlike me, right? <laughs> And one of his favorite jokes, and I thought it was kind of mean, but he would always share it, my wife's a real angel, always up in the air harping about something. <laughs> now, it showed a great misunderstanding of two things. Number one, he didn't understand his wife. She was a sweetheart. She was a beautiful woman, a wonderful woman, kind-hearted. Um, I, I thought that joke at her expense was unfair, and really it doesn't describe women at all, but he loved to say that. So he had a great misunderstanding of that, but secondarily, he had a great misunderstanding of heaven. For a lot of people, they picture heaven as this rather boring place. You're flirting around on a cloud, reclining, nothing much to do all day, and you bust out the harp, and you strum on the harp, and that's about all you do day in, day out for eternity. They view heaven as that forever retirement community where we really don't ever have to do anything and where everything is provided for us. But frankly, it's just a little bit boring. 
I've even heard some Christians who have a misunderstanding of heaven saying, gosh, in what I read about descriptions of heaven, oh, it just sounds kind of boring. And if that's the image that you have of heaven, guess what? You're right. How boring would that be to sit around on a cloud strumming a harp forever, day in, day out, no end? Well, that's not the description that we see of heaven in this passage. And I want to change our thinking on what heaven is because heaven is really at its core not about us, it's about God. And it is us responding to God forever showing us new things about Himself. Forever learning and growing and receiving things that are exciting and wonderful and challenging to us, not things that are boring and old and repetitious. So that's what I want us to see as we go into this text. Now, let's begin with this first point, the witness of heaven's power and beauty. And what we find as we come to the first two verses is the beginning of this discussion about John's witness as to what is in heaven. And notice what he says in this text. After this, I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven... And the first voice, verse, or voice which I heard speaking to me like the trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So this beginning introduction is John explaining to us how he gets the information that he shares in this text. He shares with us that he comes to a wide open door that grants him access into heaven. Now, what I find particularly interesting in this transition from Revelation chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 4 is the door. Remember what we found in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hears my voice, I will come in and have fellowship with him. That was Christ seeking entrance into the church, and the church had closed its doors to Christ. They were more interested in other things. But when we come to chapter 4, we find that the Apostle John is given free access through a door into heaven. Many believe that the person who was inviting John into heaven is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, because he himself is the door that grants us access into heaven. But what we find in this text is John beginning to share with us this entrance into heaven, and look at how he describes it. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and a first voice which had heard, I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. So this is a loud, authoritative voice. This is a voice that is bidding him to come into God's presence. And after he invites him and he says, come up here and I will show you what must take place, we find in the second verse that the Word of God goes on and says, and at once I was in the Spirit... And behold, a throne stood in heaven. Now, what we see is John doesn't physically leave the island of Patmos where he was under arrest and in prison. His body and spirit don't go into the presence of God. As many of you know, we are made up of body, soul, spirit, right? And there is a material and an immaterial part of us. The material part of John remained on the island of Patmos, but his soul spirit left the body and went into the very presence of God. Now, I can't explain to you the mechanics of that, and I don't have to. 
It doesn't really matter. What the Word of God is revealing in this passage is John went personally into the presence of God. This isn't a vision where he's just seeing this. This is his soul spirit actually being in the presence of God. It's hard for us to grasp that, isn't it? But this is what John describes. The Word of God talks a lot about being absent from the body, present with the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul talks about that when it comes to our death. As a believer, when this body, this tent, wears out, my soul spirit goes into the presence of God, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, this is a temporary departure from the body for John, and it's for a purpose. God is revealing some important truths to John. And so he shares with us a little bit about this process. But look at what else we find in this text. As John begins to describe it, he mentions a scene that many, many people have described in the Scripture. No, not really, not many, only a few. And listen to what John shares with us. He shares at once... I was in the presence, and behold, I stood in the throne room of heaven with one seated on the throne. Now, for us, we don't have a context for a throne. We don't think in those terms. When we think of a throne, we don't picture a place of authority, a place that is set off by itself, communicating the authority and power and strength of the entire kingdom because we have a different form of government. We don't think in those terms. As a matter of fact, when we think of a throne, we think in terms of something that's not good. We think in terms of a tyrant or a dictator. That's not what's being pictured for us here. The throne room of God, this throne that is placed in heaven, is a place that very few have come to see. And among them are Isaiah. When you go home, jot this down, I would encourage you to read Isaiah chapter 6. We also see Ezekiel mentioned going into the presence of God. But in the New Testament, we also have the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 is a passage that shares this with us. And it says this, And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, and he heard the things that cannot be told, which a man may not utter. Now in this text, what the passage was talking about was the Apostle Paul himself. The Apostle Paul is sharing by way of testimony that he had the opportunity to go into the presence of God in that 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians. And just as John describes his experience, Paul opens up the opportunity to believe that he went out of the body to go into the presence of God. So again, the idea of being in the presence of God, spiritually, not bodily, on these occasions where God shares a great revolution or a revelation is something that is repeated multiple times within the Scripture. And so that's what he's sharing with us, that this is what he experienced, and this experience brought him into this throne room. Now, we're introduced to the throne room in that second verse, but there's a great more, much more detail that we find as we go into this passage. Look at the next point. 
Words cannot adequately describe heaven. Have you ever tried to describe something that you see that's nothing short of amazing? Try and describe a sunset. Oh, you can talk about the various hues of orange. You can talk about the glow of the sun. You can talk about the beauty of the landscape that leads up to the sunset. You can put it all in terms that have descriptive words, but the words fall short, don't they? You can't describe that sunset perfectly in words. The sunset is only a picture of something painted by words, it falls short. But when you see that sunset firsthand, when you visualize it for yourself, night and day difference, you can see its beauty. And again, you say to yourself, I could never put this into words. This is so gorgeous. This is so beautiful. Well, this is what John is doing in describing heaven to us. A lot of the language that John uses in this text are words that would have made sense in the first century, but words that maybe don't make as much sense to us. So let's look at this and try and gain understanding into exactly what John is describing. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says this, and it's describing this throne that God is seated upon, and it says this, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, these are precious stones, and what John was doing was describing the heavenly scene in the most beautiful stones that he knew of or that the people of his time knew of. This was a place of value and beauty And these words can in no way capture what heaven is really like, but it gives us at least a glimpse as to what this throne room looks like. Absolute beauty, absolute value as we look upon it. Look at what else he says in verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garment with golden crowns on their heads. So here's the scene, this beautiful throne, this emerald rainbow above it, these beautiful stones that comprise the throne itself, and this majestic being, God, seated on the throne, radiating glory from His being. And then around the throne are these 24 thrones. Now, when we come to a passage like this that talks about the 24 elders that are seated on the 24 thrones around the throne of God, sometimes we get so bogged down in identifying who these elders are that we somehow miss the point of what's being expressed here. I went into a dozen different commentaries and I had a dozen different interpretations as to who the 24 elders are. The one that made the most sense to me as to who these 24 elders are is the interpretation that they are from the 12 tribes of Israel and they are from the 12 apostles or representatives of the apostles. That's the idea that made the most sense to me. But here's what is being shared. These are 
the thrones of men. And these men have been made righteous because they're in the presence of God. And notice how it's described, they're in white robes. Now, as we've looked in other passages in the book of Revelation, we've seen that the white robes have represented purity, righteousness. And this is what I believe is being represented here as well. The Word of God is sharing with us that these 24 people, whoever they are, have been made righteous. They're given these positions of honor by God, but those positions of honor aren't about each one of those thrones. Those positions of honor are encircling the throne focused on God. And I think that's one of the most important lessons that we learn about heaven. Heaven is not about us. It's about God. Every description, every thought that is expressed about heaven always has God at the center of it. When we misunderstand heaven, usually what we do is we read ourselves into heaven and we think about how it affects me. So if I'm looking at heaven and thinking, ah, heaven sounds boring, who's that about, me or God? It's about me. If I'm looking at heaven and I'm saying, wow, you know, it seems like God's kind of on this ego trip that he has to have all these people around him constantly talking about how great he is. Who am I making heaven about? My perspective rather than who God is. You see, what I see as we go through this glimpse into heaven is that God isn't on a divine ego trip where he has these 24 elders surrounding him and then later we'll see some living created beings, angels worshiping him. That's not what God is about. He isn't forcing them into doing what they do. They do what they do as a response to what God has revealed about himself. And that's where we get very confused, I think, in our ideas about heaven. As people worship God in heaven and here on earth, the worship should really be about God and not about us. It should be focused like a laser on who God is. And my belief is, as we see this throne room of God, as these 24 elders respond to God, as the angels that will be introduced in just a little bit respond to God, everything that they say is an automatic response, not something that they do because everybody else is doing it, but it's coming from their soul and their spirit and their heart. When you see something amazing, Say you're on vacation. I lived in Colorado for a while, and there were places where we would round a corner and pull off the road and look at what God had created. And no one had to say, okay, at this point, Rob, you will now say, wow. It escaped from my core because of what I had seen. That's what's going on in heaven. As people view God, as they look to Him, as they see Him, there are these organic responses that come as the result of their experience. And it never grows old. And it's never diminished by sin. But it's always focused on the throne of God, on God Himself.
So here are these 24 elders. They have white garments. They're seated on thrones, and they have crowns on their heads. And then look at verse 5. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, let's break this down into lightning, and then we'll talk about those lamps. When you see lightning, you can't help but pay attention, right? (laughs) When you see that flash of lightning, that same response of, wow, right? It's a natural, normal response. And man, when you hear thunder, whether it's that crack of thunder or whether it's that rumbling in the background, all of that is something that speaks of power and majesty and it brings wonder to us when we look upon that. That's what John saw as he looked to God. It brought wonder to him. He's looking and he's saying, God is powerful, God is light, God is too wonderful for words. So I'm picking inadequate things to describe what I'm seeing, and it gives us a glimpse of it, but words can't speak of the greatness of God. One other thing about thunder and lightning. When you see thunder and lightning off in a distance, what does it tell you? A storm's coming. You hear the rumbles, then you hear the cracks, and then you see the lightning. Let me just say that as John is transitioning from the letters to the churches in the first three chapters, the description of God and the person of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, the description of the churches in chapters 2 and 3, now he's transitioning to the throne room of God, but what he's transitioning to is the throne room of God is where the judgment that God is getting ready to visit upon the earth will come from because he is almighty God. He is holy God. We should focus on him. Something else that mentions the seven spirits of God. When we look at this mention of the seven spirits of God, we've seen it before. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, we saw that the passage of Scripture that we looked at there was describing for us this seven spirits of God now mentioned. And what it shares with us in that text, and I believe also in this text, is a description of the ministry of the Spirit of God, seven being the perfect or complete number. And so here you have God the Father, you have God the Spirit, and what we'll see in chapter 5 is God the Son will come on the scene as well, the Trinity, all expressed in these two chapters. This picture of this throne room with the spirits of God and the seven lamps, with the thunder and lightning, with this beautiful throne, all of this pictures a place that is preparing us for the judgment that is to come. In fact, in Revelation chapter 8, verse 5, the Word of God talks about this thunder and lightning in this way. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. Now, this is a part of the judgment that God is going to visit upon the earth. And it says this, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquakes. So this association between the coming judgment 
that will be described in the bulk of the book of Revelation is introduced to us even here in chapter 4 in the throne room of God. Now, as we look at this throne room of God, we had a glimpse of what the throne room of God and heaven itself would be like throughout the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle and then later the temple had blueprints for how it was to be constructed and what it was to be furnished with. And what amazed me as I was looking through this text, the parallels between what we see in heaven itself and the preparation so that we would think in these terms by the tabernacle and the temple. There are many parallels between what we find in the temple or tabernacle and heaven. In fact, the writer of Hebrews said this, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Now here he's talking about the temple and the construction of the temple. And then he goes on to say this, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. Now what he's doing in this text is comparing the sacrifices of lambs and goats and cattle with the sacrifice, the ultimate one, of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is, while those sacrifices of the lambs and goats and cattle pertain to the tabernacle and the temple, the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice pertains to heaven. But then he goes on to say this, for Christ has entered into not holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You see, the imagery is in the tabernacle and the temple, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year to cover the sins of the nation until the next year. But what we find in Hebrews chapter 9 is Christ is the ultimate high priest. He went into the presence of God, not with the blood of lambs, but with the blood of himself and his sacrifice on the cross. And in this true place that the temple and tabernacle were only representative of, Jesus Christ is there making provision for our sins. When you look at these parallels between heaven and the temple and the tabernacle, it's amazing. In fact, I came across this chart from Warren Wiersbe, and I found it very helpful. On the left, you find the earthly temple. On the right, you find the heavenly sanctuary, the holy of holies, earthly temple, the throne of God the heavenly sanctuary. The seven-branched candle we would find in the temple just outside the Holy of Holies was the seven-branched lamp. And here in the throne room of God, the seven spirits, the Holy Spirit. The bronze laver, which was uh, an instrument in the temple for part of their worship, and the sea of glass right in front of the throne. The cherubim, over the mercy seat. And then in this description, we will find four creatures around the throne. You have priests in the temple, elders at the throne. 
You have the brazen altar mentioned in the Old Testament temple. And then you have the altar of God described where the blood of Christ was applied. You have the incense altar that raised up an aroma and worship to God. And that is also found in the book of Revelation. And then finally, it isn't the Ark of the Covenant covenant. Somehow this got off in the translation. But the Ark of the Covenant is actually mentioned in both the earthly temple and in the temple of God. So what that tells me is God was beginning to reveal much about heaven even in the way that He designed the temple and the tabernacle to get us pointed toward the truth that God would share with us. Once again, we come to this text and we find something else mentioned here that should really catch our attention. Toward the latter part of this text, it says, around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now again, when we picture this with our minds, we see something, frankly, kind of grotesque. I don't know about you, but if I ran into a creature that had eyeballs peppered on its front and back, it would freak me out. I think what is being described here is something that communicates the power and the majesty of these beings, and he's using prophetic language to describe beings that are beyond our understanding or our comprehension. Now, many people have tried to take this text, and it goes on to describe these creatures as one like a lion, one like an ox, one like the face of a man, and one like an eagle. And they've tried to identify these various animals and draw some sort of correlation between those animals and some sort of representation. People got really creative in that identification. But you know what? I'm not going to go there. Because sometimes I think we get so bogged down in trying to identify the minutia of what's being described to us, we totally forget what's being articulated by these beings and where they are. Suffice it to say that I believe that these living creatures described here in this text are angelic beings that surround the throne of God and express worship toward God. And this is what they do all day, all night, for thousands of years in the past and for eternity into the future. That has been the ministry of these creations. Now, once again, when we look at this, wouldn't it be easy for us to look at that and say, was that all they do? I mean, they just stand there and talk about how great God is? What's going on here? But understand, once again, these created beings are not forced into this position it is a response as to who God is and this expression that comes from them wells up inside and they can't hold it in any longer. It comes out because of the person that they're in the presence of, God. As we come to the next part of this passage, we find in verse 8 that these living creatures with the six wings and full of eyes they are day and night, never ceasing to say, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, some of you think that our worship choruses are a little repetitive. Talk about repetition. Day in, day out, every day. For eternity, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. How does that not get redundant? How does that not get repetitive? By the way, could you advance the slide? Thank you. (laughs) This worshiping that's being done by these angels, just like with the 24 elders, is a response. You see, I believe that every time they're saying the word holy, they're expressing some new, unique aspect of God that they've become aware of. Their words are not repetitive and trite because of who they're about. God isn't repetitive or trite. And they don't become repetitive or trite to the angels because they are responding to God, not just saying words because it's time for them to say it or it's in their job description to say it. It's a response to the revelation of God. And you know, as I looked at this, it made me think about my worship. Sometimes my worship isn't a response to God at all. It's a response to the bulletin. It's a response that tells me, now it's time to worship, so put on my worship face. Look at the screens. Say the words on the screen, but my mind is 100 miles off thinking about someone or something else. Not so in the presence of God. These angels are saying holy, which means unique, one of a kind. And what they're saying is, God, there's no one like you in this. And God, there's no one like you in this. Oh, wow, I just saw this about you, God. And there's no one like you in that. I love to look at creation And when I go to certain places in creation, like the mountains or the ocean, I never get tired of it. I look and I say, wow, this is wonderful. And folks, that's just the created, not the creator. The creator is behind all of this. He made all of this. So my worship needs to be about the one who was holy, the God Almighty, the one who is all-powerful, the one who was and is and is to come. He is eternal. Being in heaven isn't about being consigned to an eternal worship service. (laughs) It's about being in the presence of God and responding to who God is. And that's exactly what these angels do, and that is exactly what we will do as well. We are witnesses to the wonder of God. And we need to think in terms of worship now in that same way. As I worship God, don't just say the words. Think about what they're expressing. Put aside the style of music or whether it's a catchy tune or not. Think about the words and express to God your praise, allowing those words to speak for you. One other thought. We have the worthiness of God expressed by men. In the concluding thought, we come to verses 9 through 11. And this is what we find. And whenever the living creatures give God the glory and honor 
And thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. Now, let me pause with this for a moment. What is the response of the 24 elders who are before the throne every day? God does not become old hat to them. Whenever there is this expression of praise, their immediate response is humility. Falling on their face before God is a humbling of ourselves before God. It disturbs me when believers refer to God as the man upstairs or some other euphemism to describe the holy almighty God. Whenever someone sees God in the scripture, they don't go up and say, hey God, I was wondering when I'd get to talk to you. You know what their immediate response is? Boom, flat on their face before the holy God. Because there's a perspective. You are the almighty. I am the created. I fall before you. So here are these 24 elders falling down before God who is seated on the throne and they worship Him who lives forever. You know what worship means? It means to ascribe worth. And this is what they do. They speak of the worthiness of God to receive their praise. Look at what else they do. Toward the end of that 10th verse it says, they cast their crowns before the throne. These crowns, the word in the original language is Stephanos, and it's a description of the victor's crown, something that an athlete would get in the Olympic Games as a recognition of excelling in their sport. For the Christian, it's a description of a life that was well-lived in honoring God and being obedient to Him. But here's the perspective that we get on these crowns. These crowns aren't so we can walk around heaven with a crown on our head and say, see what I got? Look at what I earned. This is what I did. That's not the purpose of the crown. You see, you worship God throughout your life by serving Him. But then casting your crown before God is an acknowledgement that my service was for Him. And the recognition isn't me, it's toward God. You know, again, I think there's an important perspective for us as followers of God. What I do to serve God in church isn't about me. It's not so that I can draw attention to myself. It's not so I can walk around talking about the titles that I have in church. It's not. What I do in serving God is all about God. And I take my service and I lay it at his feet. I have an open hand with the honors and the recognition that I might receive because it's God's and not mine. Look at what the 24 elders say repeatedly. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. So here is an expression of worthiness, of praise, God, you deserve all that you receive in our responses to your greatness. You are the one who evidences glory and honor and power, and you are the creator. 
And when it says, for you created all things, it's an expression that God has ownership over all things as the creator. And then they conclude with this thought. And by your will, they existed and were created. Do you know what a throne is? A throne room in the ancient Near East and other cultures was the place where decisions are made. When there was a law that was going to be put into effect in the throne room. When there was a decree about what would take place in the kingdom, the king would step into his throne and issue the decree. And there was authority and power of the kingdom behind the decree. What the Word of God is teaching us about God's throne room here is that from heaven, God rules the earth. He is the creator. He is the one who decrees what will be and what is. Because as the creator, he not only created, but he continues creation. This is the God that we worship. So what is heaven like? Not a billowy cloud where we wear some sort of funky robe that's all white and strum on a lyre or harp. Heaven is the throne room of God where we see the Almighty God, Creator, the one who decreed all into existence and continues to control all things. We fall before Him, not in a forced way, but in a responsive way, and we express praise to God for who He is. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this glimpse into heaven. And our prayer, God, is that we would be faithful to worship you and honor you because of who you are. God, take us out of the equation and let us focus on you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.